Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to episode 97 of the Women's Running Podcast. In this episode, Holly and I are diving into the psychology of running and nutrition. We have a special guest with us for much of the episode, Josephine Perry, a sports psychologist who has genuinely blown our tiny minds. Josie got into sports psychology after doing an Ironman while facing a scary ocean for the swim section. The tannoy shouted out to the assembled athletes, you guys can't change those waves, but you can change the way you feel about them. And it switched her brain into gear, gave her a triathlon PB and motivated a change in career. And it's lucky for us that she has. We have so many questions for Josie and she talks to us here about how the brain is connected to our bodies and she explains the part of the brain, the amygdala, which is the bit that notifies us about threats. We talk about how this can affect us on the start line of races a lot, it turns out, and we also talk about sports and exercise addiction and the unhealthy attachment of sport and food. Holly and I both found this chat extremely revealing and a little bit emotional, if I'm honest. What Josie reveals about the dynamic between exercise, food and historical unhelpful behaviours and thinking feels like a light switching on. What we need to be doing, it turns out, is discovering what our values are and making sure we run for those things rather than as some kind of negative punishment. It sounds obvious, but it often isn't. This feels like a really illuminating and important podcast. I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Please take care here. There are some potentially triggering mentions of eating disorders and sport addiction. If you like this podcast, you will love Women's Running Magazine. Right now, it's our summer sale. This means if you become a member of Women's Running Plus right now, you can get your hands on your first issue of Women's Running for just £1. Holly and I are very excited about this. Get yourself along to shop.womensrunning.co.uk and enter WRSS22POD at the checkout and you can have a shiny new copy of Women's Running for a quid. (laughs) 
you didn't know. I could tell that you were actually like she's probably fucked. Like once, <laughs> I remember. Um, I remember going to a concert with my it, with my mom and dog. I think, and I have no idea. I don't know why I did this, but we got back after the. It was like two hours of you know watching the show, and then came out and and when I say show I was going to see my singing teacher sing in the local church I wasn't going to like Wembley Stadium <laughs> but still I I got back and I I saw that I'd left my car door open on my <gasps> side and I just immediately went it's fine everything's fine and no one's stolen anything because <laughs> <laughs> it's my immediate reaction just to try and, <laughs> try and damper down the fact that actually it, everything might not be everything fine and someone could well fine. have stolen yeah. everything <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> <Fucking hell. laughs> i'm sure josie would have something to say about that but... i'm sure she would. yeah, yeah. <laughs> josie who for the listener yeah is this should we just do the in is this what yeah, yeah. we're yeah. doing it we're doing it we're about to talk to her yeah, we are, we are. So, um, we, so we're just having a um, a quick, a quick chat because quick we chinwag, really uh, quick chin wag. Because in a couple of minutes, we are talking to Josephine Perry, uh, who's a sports psychologist. Who um, we've literally just come off the podcast from, and we have had both of our tiny minds blown. I think I that's know. probably about right, isn't it? She yeah. is bloody amazing she's, and she's so good i so, got a wobbly uh, lip thinking about how good she was it did make me almost cry um yeah so we're gonna we we talked to her about um well it's kind of we talked to uh, there were two sort of main things that we were really talking about and one of them was kind of um sports and anxiety like like start line anxiety we talk about that for quite some time mm-hmm. but we also talk about um uh sports addiction um but then we but we also talk more generally about how psychology can help amateur runners um everywhere um and yeah. in fact it sounds very much as though lots of stuff that she was talking about is it's not necessarily just the sport bit it, it can help in life that was like, i think what blew my mind the most is i had the impression that her job was sort of i literally start the interview by telling her that she tells footballers to stop having tantrums which I very quickly discover is not <laughs> not quite not a the language nor the content really um and yeah I was really shocked by how much of it is is entangled in all of the things that we do every day yeah yeah it was quite philosophical wasn't it we really we end up really just talking about purpose and what makes us all tick and yeah yeah, it was great. It just, yeah, I, it was just amazing. And like, yeah, both of us, we were just WhatsApping just then, and we both of us got quite emotional yeah. during it. I think um, there was, there's a bit when when she was talking about. So, so I, I mean, I contacted her um, because I kind of selfishly wanted to talk to her because I had some concerns about my own kind of running behavior and training Mm. behavior and things and I just thought you know what seeing as I put my entire bloody life on this podcast and you know everyone is suffering my perimenopause with me why don't I (laughs) do this as well yeah Um, it's safe in the knowledge that I I thought that she would be uh, of interest to more than just me um but I kind of knew I had to sort of put myself out there really and the things that she talked about when it came to sports addiction, I found really quite, I don't know, it just cut close 
Yeah, I, I can because, see that. And I think because like when when I'd done some quick doctor googling, I was when I, when I had a bit of a concern. I think it was last week when we chatted, and I was like, mm-hmm. "I'm really knackered. I shouldn't be running, but I ran anyway." So it's a really small sort of switch. And then I did a bit of googling, and I just thought, "Oh well, I don't I don't tick any of those boxes." I'm I'm doing my usual thing of of giving myself a label, uh, so that's just mm-hmm. not me. But then, having spoken to her, it, it, everything was sort of linked together, and there were there were sort of like tiny small triggers, and there was also the link with eating. But it was also my own kind of realization that no, okay, I don't run through injury. Oh no, hang on a minute, I do, I do, and I run through illness. And but at the heart of it all is that link between what we eat and the exercise that we do yeah that was fascinating it was fascinating and a bit terrifying because I am on here the whole time and in the magazine the whole time talking about how it's not about food how it's about the run and Mm. and and agreeing with her that we should separate those two things that food is there um, to nourish us, but also for us to enjoy, um, and running is not there to punish mm-hmm. us. And I feel like the biggest fucking hypocrite in the world because I just I know what I do. I do mm-hmm. do that. It's making me feel wobbly lip now. It's terrible. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> it's awful. Just like that whole. It is using one to to combat the other. Yeah. It's just, yeah. It's, um, when you totally deserve to have lovely food and Mm. whether you've run or not that day and equally you totally deserve to go for a run if you really feel like I've got itchy legs and I need to go out and and go for it and regardless of what you're going to I mean it might be helpful to have some something fueling but (laughs) you know that that I do think it yeah really highlighted the importance of separating that connection like I think really unless we're talking about being like I hope Kate Percy isn't listening. But if we're really talking about being, yeah, Eilish McColgan or somebody, mm. then of course you're going to have to really think about the way that your fuel affects your running. But the purpose of that is the running. It's not to do with the with with negating any of the food that you've eaten. And certainly in the positions that we're in, yeah, I think we should be able to eat what we like, do what we want with our bodies, and still run and enjoy that. And I think the thing that was really amazing that she put into words for us there was was really making us think about why and yeah. and yeah. that's a tough question because I know that there are some negative things for me as well about why I know yeah. that I feel better about myself for some good for some genuine good reasons like I moved my body and I got my heart rate up and but I also know that I feel like oh maybe that will mean that the toast that I had didn't count yeah, and we shouldn't be thinking like that at all because we need the toast to live. If it didn't count, we'd be yeah. fucked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it oh. was. I mean, yeah. I think it was. I, I thought you were very brave during that conversation. Oh, thanks, Hall. I yeah, I didn't. I didn't feel brave, but I do. I do. I absolutely. I totally agree with you. As a result of it, I want to track down. Well, A, I'm going to get her book, but B, oh God, I want yeah. to um, track down what those hundred words are. Those because she talks about 100 different values, and you can 
in a way, it, it, you know, figure out what your three values are, and then you can use those. I mean, she'll talk about this in, in length, mm. at length in a, in a little bit. But you could you, then, when you've figured out exactly what it is that drives you to do things like running, when you've figured out those values, then you can use those to dampen down the sort of negative thoughts in your head when they arise. Like, so for yeah. instance, if you're finding the end of a run tricky, or if you're, um, or if you're, you, you know, if you're wondering um, whether or not to go for a run that day for whatever reason. Yeah. And and sometimes the reason that you choose not to run in the end is absolutely perfectly valid. Yeah. But sometimes it might be because you're just like, oh, I just want to stay in because it's Love Island. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Esther versus me. But-, <laughs> <laughs> but it's in talking to Josie, yeah, Esther versus Holly, mm. we're both – equally shit aren't we I think I know equally I'm good about, but for yeah. very very different you know yeah. so because we have quite different sp- different responses when we're what we're essentially doing is being quite nasty to ourselves exactly yeah and it's just different ways of of then our silly brains going what should I do because I'm a piece of shit <laughs> yes sadly and sadly. really yeah. what we need to do is work out what drives us other than thinking I'm crap I need to do something about it because yeah. that isn't a driver your drivers are your values yeah and that it, it was it was so interesting I don't know whether it's worth saying as well that we do talk about as a bit of a trigger warning that we do talk about so uh, you know mental health stuff we talk about eating disorders we talk, we do about, talk about eating disorders, yeah yeah addiction issues mm-hmm. but I do think all in a very, you know, f- friendly and, and gentle way. And Josie is yeah. just so bloody clever. She basically. is bloody clever. Let's, let's go to Josie. So to stop me weeping anymore, let's go. Um, I'm really, let's... we're both a bit oh, it's very hot. I think we're just both. <laughs> yeah, it's the time of day. Um, yeah. <laughs> we'll, let's go straight to Josie. And um, so you, you guys can benefit from her as much as we just have. Um, yeah, because she's amazing. Yeah. I wanted to get you on because a few a few weeks ago, we were having a chat on the podcast and um, we were talking about a couple of things. And well, maybe we'll, maybe we'll get to it in a bit. I was just, I was like, we just, we need expert here. And you are expert. I'll try so, my uh, best. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for coming on to the podcast, Josie. Um, you are a sports psychologist, is that right? Yep. Um, what Officially, that, what that? we're sport and exercise psychologists. Okay. Um, so a few people work much more on the exercise side, helping people get into exercise. Um, okay. Most of us probably work on the sports side. So, so what does that mean? What does that entail? Um, so my main kind of client base, I guess, are endurance athletes because, like you guys, I'm a runner, um, yeah. triathlete. This is oh. my world. Oh. Um, and often for me, it's people with burnout who've been trying to do too much at too high a level for too long and it's mm. kind of come crashing down and people with performance anxiety. So the people that absolutely love their running or their cycling, but as soon as it's the idea of being judged by others or there's a competition Mm. element there or they could fail and they're they're often people that really, really hate the idea of failing, um, it's very, very tricky to do your best. 
And we know when you've got that performance anxiety, it changes your whole body physiology. You cannot mm. perform in the same way. And that can become incredibly frustrating because they're doing yeah. all of this really hard training and it's yeah. not coming off in competition. Um, so those tend to be the areas I work in most. Um, sometimes in sports like tennis or football, we might work with people who've got um, some emotional control issues, particularly around fairness. Um, when you see others cheating, um, oh. that can really trigger you very, very quickly to get angry. And oh, the worst so thing helping is- footballers not have big tantrums on the field. We wouldn't use the word tantrums. <laughs> but yes, learning how to um, maintain composure under pressure. Okay. Oh, God. <laughs> wow, that, that's, a, that's a huge thing. I mean, and so, so do, you, do, you help, do you help normal people like amateurs as well as professional sports people? Oh, almost everybody I work with is... Oh, really? I, I guess at the moment I probably have maybe five or six athletes who are training for like Commonwealth Games, so at mm. that level. But yeah. most people just love their sport and either want to be better at it or they want to overcome some barrier that's mm. really holding them back. And our sport can be the thing that gives us so much joy and it can yeah. be the big stress reliever in our life. And yeah. so if something goes wrong in that way and our big coping mechanisms disappearing, that can be really, really difficult to handle. So it's a real privilege. I get to help people kind of yeah. fix those areas and deal yeah. with it. Um, yeah. How did you kind of get into that, Josie? How do, you, how do you end up in that world? I didn't start in this world. I don't really yeah. think it existed as a job when I left university. And I was so unsporty anyway. Um, not my world in the slightest. Uh, so I actually worked in communications for 17 years as a journalist and then PR. I'm a comms director. And I went over to Melbourne in 2013 to do the Ironman there. And wow. I'd done all my training in London swimming pools that were nice and chlorinated and flat and calm. <laughs> and I stood on the beach in Frankston near Melbourne and the waves were horrific. And I was oh properly god, terrified. Oh my god. The Aussies were looking green. Everyone was looking scared. These were rough okay. wets. Yeah. Um, and the commentator on the Tannoy said, You guys can't change those waves, but you can change how you feel about them. And it was genuinely my yeah. like you talk about light bulb moments, but this was for me of like, oh yeah. Like I've never been good at sport. I I get okay because I work hard at it. But suddenly, if I actually used my brain, and my brain was always pretty good, I could do so much better. And it was genuinely the first time I'd kind of gone, ah, oh, there might be something in this that I could, yeah. I could do better by thinking about it differently. And I did get in the water, and I, I'm, I'm not sure where I came out of that swim, because the waves were – I've seen videos of it. It was really scary. Yeah. Um, but I did the race. It was my fastest ever Ironman. And when I came back to the UK, it really got me thinking, kind of, there's really something to this. There weren't that many books around at that time. It wasn't really talked about in the same way. Um, but I went back to university to do a conversion course in psychology and then a master's in sport and exercise psychology. And then you do three years of supervised practice, where you're training alongside a supervisor. Um, and I got through all of that. And then I've been doing this for a few years since. 
That's amazing. That's quite the journey, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's amazing. I love thinking about it like that as well, because I tend to, I've always been a bit nasty to myself about my body, but relatively nice to myself about my brain sometimes. And I really like that way of framing it, that if you consider your brain as part of that kind of, I never do. I literally just think it's my brain against my body and I'm like, you stupid lazy shit. And I, <laughs> and I don't think, I don't ever think of my brain as being part of that uh, sort of us against the world sort of thing. It, it's so fascinating how, it sounds silly, but how connected your brain is with your body and the massive influence it has on your physical activity. Yeah. So if we think, one of the things I spend a lot of time with my athletes working on is how their brain functions and how it impacts their body. And just this very short version of it is that one of the key areas of our, or the key jobs of our brain is survival. That's what mm. it cares about. It doesn't care whether you're a great runner or you get a new PB. Yeah. It cares that you survive. Mm. And to do so, there is a very specific part of our brain called our amygdala. And its job is to look out for threat. And there will be physical threats in our lives. So as a woman, if you're out running and there's a guy running too close behind you, you get the hair on the back of your neck prick up. That's your amygdala telling you you're not safe. Mm. Run faster, cross the road, get away from here, pick up your phone. So it's very helpful for physical threats. But most of the threats we get day to day are not physical. They're psychological threats. They're threats to who we feel we are. So if I feel like a runner and I want to be a great runner and it matters to me to be a good runner, every race is quite threatening because I might prove to myself if I mess that up, I'm not who I thought I was. And so a race will feel so much more threatening than me going out to do a swim where I'm not a swimmer. It doesn't matter if I do that well or not. There's no threat there. The race, if I really want to be a good runner, is very threatening. Mm. And when our threat zone is triggered, it sends cortisol and adrenaline around your body. They're to help you have that fight, flight, or freeze response. But they have very strong physical responses. The first place they go is your tummy. So I've had some athletes that will throw up before races. Mm, But most of the time what we're doing is going to sit on the toilet. Yeah, and if you, I always love the um, helicopter videos above London Marathon before it starts over Blackheath, <laughs> and the thousands of toilets and the queues, because Port it just emphasises we're all that nervous. Mm-hmm. Those nerves go to our tummy, and we want to empty everything so that we can run away from this big scary thing. Yeah, and then it raises our heart rate. So it's really fascinating. Look at your heart rate before you start a big race. Is it higher than you would imagine? Then it raises your breathing rate. Right now, I guess you guys are breathing about 12 or 13 breaths a minute. Mm -hmm. If you're really anxious before a race, it'll probably be up to about 20, 22. And that makes it much harder. It gets you amped up a little bit. It actually means you're more likely to breathe too much. Then it goes to your neck and your shoulders. That's not so bad for us as runners. Really bad for snooker players, tennis players, golfers who need to be able to move them freely. Mm. And it also reduces our peripheral vision. So we can see what's right in front of us, which is great for us as runners, actually. But it stops you hearing so well. So if you're a sprinter, you can't hear the gun go off quite as quick as others. And you can't see what's going on to the side of you. 
So wow. for like a rugby player, that's rubbish. Because yeah. you're focused on the ball, but some great big guy is going to come in and tackle <laughs> yeah. you from the side and you're, you're all messed up. So there's very, very <laughs> physical responses to that anxiety or that worry. Oh my God. Calm. I had no idea about Me, that. The peripheral vision thing. So, no. I always think that I'm a person who does tend to release rather too much adrenaline at <laughs> things that don't necessarily require it. And I, I've never noticed that, but that kind of fits for me. Like L- I, and look I, out for I know it. What you mean, yeah. If you can almost hover above your own body at times and kind of think, which bit of my brain is working right now? Mm, yeah. Is it my amygdala? And then lots of my athletes will tell me once they start noticing they've got this amygdala, they can notice the noise it makes. And they'll come back and go, oh, my God, it's so noisy. No. Oh, I'm going to be able to stop hearing it. It'll oh, my always... God. <laughs> it's going to be my next thing. But, but listen out for it. Notice it. We don't want to get rid of it. Yeah. Because if you were to, you couldn't. But if you were to physically chop it out of your brain because you don't want those threats, mm. you'd walk straight out into the road and get run over. Yeah. Because we wouldn't notice the physical threats in our lives. We need it. Mm. But most of us want to try and drown it out. And so we talk about all these things we're going to shout at it, these great big strong mantras we're going to do yeah. when we're running. But actually drowning it out just tends to try and make it louder. And you don't want to battle in your own head. There's none of this kind of, we need to be super mentally tough and shout it down. Yeah. We actually want to kind of embrace the messages it's giving us. Embrace the fact that you clearly love running and you want to be good at it. That's what it's trying to tell you. It's just trying to keep you safe. So, so what do you do, like... Um... Because all of this feels so uh, familiar. Um, so I was thinking about the last two races that I've run, um, and particularly the first. The first one I did had been it had been quite a long time before I'd stood on the start line for any race, and I remember thinking, and it was a half marathon, and I remember thinking that I that I only felt normal at about mile eight. So. I mean, it was over halfway through and I'd spent the first eight miles feeling intensely sort of stressed and quite sort of sick up in my throat mm. and very kind of stiff and unpleasant and, and kind of very unhappy, essentially. <laughs> um, how do we stop that? So that's exactly what we would expect you to feel if running is important to you you haven't raced in a long time so it's feeling quite unfamiliar then that's going to be a very strong threat response and you have those physical symptoms one of the things we tend to suggest is really thinking about the goals you set yourself so it's really easy in our society to measure ourselves by other people and goals that are really easy to measure so pb for a 10k feels very very easy to measure you know the distance and you know what you've run it for and I imagine most of your listeners would be able to repeat theirs instantly it's very big in our minds yeah but actually we don't run to get a fast 10k we run for our mental health to have some thinking time to cope with stress to meet brilliant friends to stay fit and healthy and if we can start to almost measure the metrics differently and think about why we're running, then actually we can measure them better and we can set goals that are in line with those rather than goals that matter to other people. Mm. And then you're not getting into threat beforehand. So 
one of the goals I often set myself before a race is smile and thank every marshal because the social mm. side of running is what I love. I love big city races where I feel like I'm surrounded by other people and we're all doing that same thing and we're yeah. all working hard together. So yeah. if I smile and thank every marshal, I'm not focused on how my legs or my heart or my lungs are feeling. I'm focused on the enjoyment aspect. There's a lovely piece of research that shows when people smile at you when you're running, you perform better because it reduces the perception of effort that you feel you're putting in. So you smile and thank every marshal. They smile back at you. You You perform better. There's no threat because I'm not worried about the 10K time. I'm worried (laughs) about how am I performing. Because we always always complain about, about... very very grumpy of us but we always complain about (laughs) feeling though you know when you're walking along the canal path and everybody's smiling at you and you think oh I've got I've got to summon the energy now to go "Ah," as I'm going along when I all I want to do is just kind of grit my teeth and but there you go Esther it is worth us doing we knew it we need to do it more (laughs) that was great work on 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 smiling so when you smile it teaches your brain that you're you're doing a lot better than you feel you are, so it reduces your perception of effort. Mm-hmm. And then they did some really nice lab work where I think they were on, tread, on um, turbo trainers in the lab, mm-hmm. and they flashed up images of faces whilst you were training. I think they were working to exhaustion. And those that saw grumpy faces were able yeah. to go 16% less than those that saw smiley faces. What? Oh my god! So this this, you know, this, you know what this, this makes me think? Time. It makes me think that people run past me and immediately like yeah. stop running, <laughs> <laughs> just fall over. <laughs> Terror so, yeah. smile at, if You smile at other people, you get that benefit. They smile back at you, you get double benefit. Okay. So, wow. so if you can pick something in a race, and sometimes it might be about time, but it can also be about things that you're much more in control of. I often use the example, if you'd trained for your local 10K and you'd, you'd been doing really well and you'd seen the times that people were doing the last few years mm. and you were like, brilliant, I think I can get on the podium for this. This is going to give me so much kudos at my running club. My goal is podium. My, or my goal is to win this race. Yeah. Mm. And you rock up on the morning of that race and Elish McColgan has been doing a training camp in the local area and she's decided to come and have a jog round and I'm see how she does around and run home yeah, yeah. <laughs> if your goal was to win and you look across at the start line and there's Elish she'd be like Ugh, what's the point I'm going home you won't put everything into it you won't run so well if your goal was to do your best or to push really really hard or to be out of breath the whole way round, and you look across and you see Elish you think amazing I'm running against a brilliant Olympian that set fabulous times. I'm going to hang on her heels as long as I possibly can. And you'll have a great race. You will do so much better because you had a slightly different goal that was controllable. And so often our goals aren't controllable that we end up feeling grumpy for an awful amount of time. Because when we can't control something, that's really threatening. We're putting ourselves in a position where we've got no control over the outcome. Of course, that's horrible and threatening. We're triggered instantly, physiological response in our body. We can't perform very well. Yeah, I think I I can really see. I mean, like, I think that, like, for instance, that race where I had a horrible time or I felt horrible most of the time, it had been a while since my last race. And in my head, I had my PB. That's all I had. And um, I, I didn't have any other, I didn't really have any other 
go I I hadn't given myself a goal for that race. I hadn't told myself anything, but I just had the PB just going whisper whisper whisper. And yet when I did the next one which was in Berlin, um I think I I think because because I I ended up doing that the horrible race I'd done um I, I hadn't done very well. And so it meant that it scrapped my PB. So when I went to run Berlin, I didn't have PB in my head. I just thought, oh, stuff mm. it. I'm not going to think about PB anymore because I've got this longer time in my head now. So it doesn't matter. And I ended up going 10 minutes faster. There you and go. And a much, much better time. Yeah. Because um, I think I, I, in there, I was just like, just enjoy the sights, enjoy the sights, enjoy the sights. It's just to kind of like, you know, that yeah. was it. And that's yeah. the thing you can control, I guess, is yeah. go, I'm going to take in every landmark as I go along or something like that as a bit more of a a controllable goal. And that stops the threat. That keeps the prefrontal cortex, the, the really good rational part of our brain in control. So we make better decisions. Mm. We're able to think much more clearly. We enjoy the process. So it's quite ironic. The more we want to win and the more we want to do well, the harder it becomes because we trigger that threat response and so our body doesn't perform in the way that we would like it to. The more we focus on task goals, small things, chunk down that race into small things you can do within it that are within your control, the better we tend to do. You're a genius. Right. I, okay. I obsessed. It's amazing, isn't it? I just, I, yeah. So there was one other big, big thing that we wanted to talk to you about, which was um, sports addiction. Yeah. Um, or exercise addiction. I don't know if there's a difference between the two. Um, and, and it was because um, Holly and I have been talking about some stuff recently and I realised um, so this is quite a selfish conversation, as many of our conversations <laughs> tend to be. Um, I realised that I have been forcing myself to exercise when I didn't feel, uh, I, don't, I, I wasn't in a, in a position where I, I would normally have done that. I, I don't know. I was just like, I, I'd be, I was really tired or I was um, otherwise kind of unhappy, but I was making myself do the exercise in any case. Um, and uh, realizing also that my exercise has ramped up considerably in the last sort of six months or so. Um, I don't, I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm preempting what you're going to say. I mean, I don't think that I'm, I'm addicted to exercise, um, but I wanted to get you on because I just realized that this, we were having conversations that were kind of bordering into psychology and that I wanted to get a psychologist in to actually kind of okay. tell us what it was. And um, yeah, yeah. I mean, what is sports addiction it's a really interesting one it's addictions and mental health issues are all classified within um, a a huge book they have in the us called the dsm um exercise addiction isn't classified within that so it isn't seen as a formal addiction and from all of my research there's no official route we go down to help fix it Um, and most gps wouldn't be looking out for it anyway but the research I've done with ultra endurance athletes, so that's people kind of doing half marathon and beyond in running, found there is a huge risk of it. I think 44% of ultra endurance athletes have some kind of risk of exercise addiction. And so there's no official diagnosis, but we can certainly see where there are symptoms and there are behaviours where 
over time they start to cause injury or they cause conflict. So it's more based on your lifestyle than the amount of exercise you do. So I know Elish McColgan running 15 hours a week that's probably okay because she gets a ton of time to recover and relax in between. She's got brilliant physio. She's got lots of, she's probably got those magic legs things they wear. Um, (laughs) And that's her job. Whereas me running 15 hours a week, when I've got a five-year-old daughter, a full-time job, a husband, a life, and I'm very injury prone, would absolutely be me having some kind of exercise addiction. Mm -hmm. So we tend to look at, um, are you doing more than you used to? Are you doing it when deep down you know you shouldn't? Are you sticking almost too strongly to goals? And that's the hard one because Mm. if you've set yourself a hard goal, you are going to need to be tough with yourself at times. There will be mornings you do not want to go out and run and you know you need to if you are to achieve that goal. So there is always that line, but it's um, it's if you have to stop for some reason, can you handle that? Are you missing things that are important? So I've certainly worked with athletes who've missed weddings of close friends or they've missed their own graduation ceremonies or really interviews because they had to run that day. Yeah. Have you? Are you losing your job over it? Has your boss been saying, hang on, you're never here for these meetings is it the big ones usually is it causing conflict within your family have you fallen out with other people over how much you are running and that you are neglecting other parts of your life um and then are you running through injury is a big one so when i've seen people who have it very severely they they might well have something like a stress fracture but they will still go out for a daily run I have no idea. I've tried running on a stress fracture before I realized what it was. I have no idea how you do that. The pain is excruciating. But that compulsion to exercise will be so strong Mm -hmm. and they will feel like such a failure if they don't, that it becomes their identity. Yeah. So so it's looking out for injury or conflict. I will also say I... we talk about primary exercise addiction where it's about the exercise and mm-hmm. secondary exercise addiction where it's actually secondary to an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. I see much more of the secondary exercise addiction where the running is almost like a purge for the food we're eating. Yeah. And that's why if anyone follows me on Twitter, they will see my mega rants every time a gym chain puts on how to exercise off your Christmas dinner. Uh, or uh, how to get your summer body or... Everyone active are the worst for this. I spend a lot of time in their DMs ranting. Um, (laughs) Because (laughs) the more we tie in calories and exercise, the more we are triggering that. um, I can work off what I've just eaten with that running. And both become super, super unhealthy. Yeah. Holly, let's talk about Patreon because we're on Patreon. We are indeed. After much discussion about its pronunciation, we've settled on Patreon and we'd love you to join us there. We would. We would. And how much does it cost? How much does it cost? So it can literally be as little as £2 a month. um, And we're not even just going to uh, give you our undying love, which is a given, of course. You're also going to receive a special workout PDF with all sorts of helpful tips and tricks for your next workout on there. 
if you want to join us for £6 a month, um, which obviously is a little bit more, you'd still get the same The Undying Love, maybe even a little bit more of it. Plus, I think a bit more love, yeah. And you can also send us a question and be guaranteed that we are going to chat about it on the pod. You we know promise. that we, we love promise. chatting about things anyway, but we, we promise this time we, for, yeah. the, for the six pounds a month, it'll definitely be on there. <laughs> yeah. um, and if and you the- join us for fifteen pounds a month, which we would be there, you're receiving proper top tier undying love. Yeah, oh yeah. That's, um, then that's proper proper agape love for fifteen pounds. Proper month, right? agape love, as discussed. Yes. Uh, then uh, <laughs> you will also receive. Um, a subscription to the digital edition of Women's Running, which we can attest is it's bloody amazing. fab and it's so yeah. useful. So you can read the mag straight from your phone month. every month. Every single yeah. month. Every single month. Every single month. So, so it's definitely worth that tiny, tiny investment for this amazing podcast where like sometimes, sometimes we talk about running, right? Very occasionally. So when we start to find ourselves using exercise or running particularly and noting the calories i've been in spin classes where an exercise instructor would be like note down how many calories you've just burnt off yes me too and I'm like, oh i really my head hate at the back it she well, says little comments sometimes like oh it's like i went just before the platinum jubilee weekend and i remember her being like oh it's going to be a big one you know you're going to be eating and drinking lots of naughty things as if I had to do this to push myself on this spin class in order to deserve to enjoy my four-day weekend. Mm. And it really, it's not, it doesn't work for me. It spirals me. No. And I mean, the last time I complained to everyone active, they came back and said, yes, but lots of people really enjoy these. They really want them. Um, and I, my response was lots of people enjoy smoking. It doesn't mean it's good for you. Yeah. We, we have to separate out the calories and the exercise and the food elements because mm. I that's where I see the exercise addiction really coming from is where you link that I dared to eat something this morning and now I have to work it off my punishment mm. for food is running yeah um, oh, and that's God. a really really difficult place and yeah. often the people I will work with in this area mm. have had these issues going on for 20 30 years yeah. And we think about anorexia being kind of a teenage girl issue. Um, and it's really, really not. Often you might have been able to handle the anorexia and not grow out of it, but you found coping mechanisms to deal with it mm-hmm. at an earlier age. But those messages, the messages particularly around food, are so pervasive. Yeah. They stay with us for a very, very long time. Mm. I, I once interviewed a cyclist about something and we were talking about this subject and I said, like, you'll always know someone can tell you the calories in an apple and he could tell me the calories in an apple for a small, medium and large. Yeah. <gasps> and oh and you think gosh. about the messages you get about food as a kid. You must finish everything on your plate. My mum used to do that. There are starving children in Africa that would like that dinner yeah. that you've just yeah. left. Mm. Um, we all have these these food rules that there's something about them that, stick so heavily you really really don't want exercise to be tidying up at all um so i i I don't know how we tackle it um oh my god it's just it's so like i've i've just been listening to you and just going tick 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 it's really Mm. it's it's really quite eye-opening when i thought that i might go like tick 
and then everything else will be nah, nah, it's not me, it's not me, it's not me, it's not me, it's not me. But all of those things, it it feels like you've just talked about me. <laughs> and, and for lots and lots of us, you you won't be alone in that. Um, the food messages come at us from the very earliest things mm. that we learn. Mm. And then every time we we log on, we see stuff about food and exercise being attached. Yeah. Um, and then we see, quite rightly, exercise celebrated. You, you step up your exercise, you get fit, you lose weight, you achieve a new PB. Quite rightly, everyone celebrates you. Mm. Um, I see race companies doing it. There's a race company near me that literally have run addiction on the medal holders. They they call it the fix addiction. They celebrate running addiction. I've yeah. had ranty emails to them as well. Um, <laughs> I've had a lot of ranty emails. Um, but I don't want us to be celebrating the addiction side of it. It should be the joy and the love and the passion and the brilliant things we get from it but we should have that flexibility. And so much of sport on the media side talks about mental toughness and we should stick to things. And actually my real argument, and I turn down clients that phone me and say, can you help me get mentally tougher? No, that's not what I do. I help people get mentally flexible because we need to be flexible enough to be able to be self-aware enough to know, actually, you know what? I've been doing too much lately and Mm. I've got some niggles and I'd be better off going for a swim because running today is not going to be the best thing for me or my friend's wedding is more important than doing a half marathon that day um and so having the flexibility to love our running but to be able to keep it in perspective that it's here to help us we're not here to serve it so how how would you begin to untangle that relationship between food and exercise for instance because I mean there are there are other things I mean like the running through injury I mean I don't I don't I don't think I necessarily run through I know I have run through injury but it's more likely I I will run through illness always um so yeah so I know that I've got that but like but and that's but that's because of the thing that you're talking about it's because of the food exercise reward punishment horrible thing that's going on there so how, I mean, I, 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 I understand this is not a soundbite answer, but how would we at least <laughs> begin to untangle that, that kind of the big ties between those two things? So when I work with someone that we, we figure out there might be some exercise addiction there, um, often a few sessions in you'll realise there's underlying food issues. Um, and I don't, I'm not fully qualified on that side and I will find them a a specialist clinical psychology in um, eating disorders because that's the support that you need whatever weight you are it's it's nothing to do with weight but it's actually having someone that can help you really work through often and I've done a lot of the training in this often you do things like lifelining and you start to figure out what are the triggers that have made you change behaviors um there's a psych I really love in America who always talks about success leaves clues. And I love that idea that the more we track and note about ourselves and raise our self-awareness, the more we can see why we're doing certain behaviors. Mm-hmm. So one of the first thing I ask my athletes to do is keep a training diary, but not just a today I ran five miles at six minute kilometers. It needs to be 
the unhelpful thoughts my amygdala gave me during my run today were this. Um, my peak flow today was this. My resting heart rate. The thing I'm most proud I did today was this. So that you can really start to track what's going on in your life and how that might start to influence things. So if you had that diary to be able to look back on, you can kind of go, probably there would be something that might be what what made me feel out of control around this time? What was going on where I didn't have the control that I like in my life? Didn't yeah. make me feel like I was in charge of myself or what was going on. This might have felt like a good way to get some of that back. So it's it's hard in retrospect, but a diary is very helpful as a runner to be able to see those things going on. And and that's similar to the lifelining we do in eating disorder work where you're able to look at kind of where your where your weight has been, where your eating behaviors have been, and the significant things that happened and the food stories that are told around your life and how you connect them. Yeah. Um, and that's a very significant piece of work you do with a clinical site. Mm. Much more on the exercise addiction side, we look um, at those thoughts that are going through your head. Um, we get to know our amygdala. Um, with my my athletes, we name our amygdala. We give it a character. Oh, God. Um, mine's called Joe. She's a meerkat. Um, <laughs> <laughs> mine would be some sort of little trembling, sort of can never stop kind of going. <laughs> that would definitely yeah. be mine. Sort of an- anxious Alan. Brilliant, there you go. Yeah. And, and we do that because it helps distance ourselves from some of the thoughts. So some of those, the things in your head when you are deciding, should I go for a run today or not? I've got a cold. Is it in my head or my chest? I know if it's in my head, it's probably okay. If it's in my chest, I shouldn't. But maybe I could convince myself it's in my head so that I can still go. When we're going through all of those bits, hmm we can start to distance the facts from thoughts. So anxious Alan <laughs> might be telling you what we feel are facts, but actually if they're coming from an anxious Alan, our amygdala, they're thoughts. And they pass sometimes quite quickly. Yeah. But when they're all in our head and all mixed together, we don't know where they're coming from, whether they're thoughts or facts. When we have this insight into, ah, this is coming from anxious Alan. Anxious Alan is telling me, I need to go for a run. Mm. Actually, deep down, I know my prefrontal cortex is telling me, no, you know if it's gone into your chest, you shouldn't go for a run and you'll recover much quicker if you don't. And I'm going to keep the good rational thoughts in control. And I'm just going to do a yoga session instead because I know that's okay. Mm -hmm. So you can start to distance and it's much easier when you've got that visual. Mm -hmm. So you distance. Anxious Alan is telling me. It's not a fact. It's just a thought that anxious Alan is giving me. Yeah. And then you can start to soothe anxious Alan. So it's like you're not fighting him. You're not telling him, oh, shut up. Mm. You're always telling me this load of old rubbish. But it's like, thanks for the thought. I know you're telling me if I miss a session, it's disastrous. But I've heard so many experts on my podcast telling me mm-hmm. that actually rest is the best time when we get better and I'll come back <laughs> quicker from it. So yeah. I think I'm going to listen to them. So you, you've distanced, you yeah. soothe him, and then you remind yourself of why you're doing this. Is it that I'm doing this because I must run every day to be a good person or to work off those calories? Or are you doing it because 
running makes you a nicer person or running helps you work through issues. And so you can soothe and be like, and I run because it helps me work through issues, but I could also work through issues by going for a walk and getting a coffee. So I'm going to do that instead. So you end up with much nicer conversations in your head. Yeah. This is a very compact version. But I love that because it gets you to the root of why you like it, why you do it, what makes you tick with it. And then if it isn't available to you that day because of illness, injury, whatever, that can really help you kind of channel that into something else. I'd never thought of that, but that's completely true. But this morning I woke up, I had slightly restless legs and I was like, oh, it's definitely a a day that I need to do some exercise. And at the moment I'm not injured or anything, so I probably will. But that if I was having a day where I couldn't fit it in or I did feel like I've had, yeah, maybe a bit of a chesty cough or something, then I never would have thought going for a walk with a friend and getting coffee would be an equivalent to going for a run. I would think, oh, I need to go to some kind of, I need to do a sort of a hit class on YouTube or something. But no, it's not, I don't, it's not about that for me, the route. It's about the unraveling of my brain a little bit and being able to sort of get things back to basics and, and process things. And I yeah. can usually do that by going for a wander. There's, um, there's a really lovely book called Start With Why mm. uh, that really digs into that kind of that purpose element. Um, and my new book's got a whole chapter on purpose that when we can really get why we do the things we do and what matters to us, really yeah. matters to us. And when we can pull out our values mm. and why things are important, we can have a whole new take on stuff. Mm. Um, one of the interviewees in the book was Sarah Pascoe, the comedian. Oh yeah, And we talked about values and she said, I only have one and it's not to make anyone's life worse. And she, oh. she was lovely with the way she spoke about it and that she was talking about how it helped her behave very differently in her comedy. So she said she once had a routine about anorexia and she said it was really funny, but after she did it at student union, um, the chair of the Anorexia Society wrote to her and said, do you realise how you made some of our members feel? Oh, and God. she just had this absolutely enlightening moment of, my God, my job is to make people come out and have a brilliant, funny night. The last thing I would ever want to do is make somebody feel like that. And she mm. instantly dropped the joke because her job is to make people feel better and good about themselves and that mm-hmm. drives everything she does and so even though it was a very funny joke and most people in the room found it highly amusing her purpose was deeper than that and her purpose is to make people feel brilliant and so yeah. she dropped it yeah. and and that's not our running world but if we can get to the crux of why we run I want to be the kind of person I had it I had a race at the weekend I had a triathlon um swim was brilliant the bike a guy crashed right in front of me and I spent 20 minutes I, I've got no first aid I spent 20 minutes marshalling everybody around him so that we could keep him safe and nobody else crashed whilst people that knew what they were doing looked after him and I, I waited there till the ambulance and the marshals came and then I finished carried on with my race um, and by the time I got to the run I'd kind of lost momentum I'd lost 25 minutes or something um, and it was really hard to keep going. My back was hurting. It was hot. There was no point. I was never going to get a place. And it really, I, I remember being about three kilometers into the run and having to dig so deep of why am I doing this? Mm. Was I doing yeah. it to get a place on the podium? 
And it's like, no, because actually that's that's not always that likely for me. And it was, I was actively, me and Joe, my my meerkat and Migdala yeah. really having that conversation. <laughs> Joe was like, stop, this is stupid. Your back hurts. You could go and have a coffee. You've got a brilliant excuse that you lost all that time on the bike. No one cares. You could stop. And my absolute pull was, my purpose is to show my daughter that you don't quit when stuff gets tough. And this provides me a brilliant opportunity to show her that mummy's pushed through when something was really hard. And yeah. I want her to know that you've got to be brave in life to do stuff. And so m- my mantra is make Hattie proud. And so to be able to use that the whole way through, I really did have to draw on it on Sunday. It was <laughs> Joe the amygdala was super strong. But <laughs> yeah. those bits to draw you into why am I doing this? It's bigger than will I get third place in a triathlon no one else cares about? Or will I be able to show my daughter that even when something is really, really hard and you really want to stop, you don't? That was a much bigger pull. And so when you can spend that time in reflection on why am I doing this? Yeah. That helps you have those amygdala debates, helps you soothe it, and it helps you remind why you're there in the first place. Yeah. Bloody hell. Yeah, because it does. It does feel like because I don't have that other why. All I've got is the bad thing. So I, I, I the, my, we yeah, all need a why. Mm-hmm. I need a why, and I and I've I've had that before, like in therapy and stuff, where I've been asked things like, "Why do you think that's going to happen?" or "Why do you feel like that?" Why questions, and to which I never ever have the answer. I'm like, I don't know. I just it just feels bad. It just you know. I I, I I don't know how I don't know why I behave in the way that I do but what I need to do is come to the crux of that in order to be able to yeah. down down mm. <laughs> and and the, the positive version of that is so often what we're looking for in therapy is the root causes of our behaviors mm. what we do much more of in sports psychology and positive psychology is looking for the the thing that's powerful enough to make us change so that when we notice us doing the unhelpful behaviours, we can be very astute with ourselves. Does this match a value of mine? So if one of my values is courage. Mm. That really, really matters to me. Quitting on Sunday wouldn't have been courageous. Mm. Carrying on was courageous. And so being able to remind myself that value really matters mm. to me. I want to live my life like that. I don't want to be the person that's kicking myself when I quit. Yeah. I want to be the person that lives that value. Yeah. That is so helpful across anything. Yeah. It helps you I make you have decisions. Decide, so just what I was going to say, I guess you have to decide that for yourself as well, don't you? You do. That you can't you pick can't, anyone else's. Yeah, you can't pick anyone else's because I would love <laughs> to say that mine is courage. I don't know if it is. And, <laughs> and so, but, 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 you know, that, that's not something that I should immediately then go, oh, because you're crap. It's mine are, are going to be other things that I need and to I need to work out. I have a list of a hundred values that I give to athletes mm. and mm. others I work with. I work with people on the stage or in business, and we work through them. We cross them out and we debate and discuss and get to the crux of them until we've got three left. Mm. <sighs> I have never had any two people come back with the same three. Yeah, oh, and that is such a good reminder that um, we're all different and we all value different things. And the really helpful part of it is that when one of our values is violated, 
our amygdala gets triggered. Mm. So if fairness really matters to you and somebody cheats in a match, your amygdala will get violated. You've been violated. Amygdala kicks off. Mm. You have those responses. If you have uh, a value like perfectionism or like being perfect or hardworking, determined, that might be a value that's constantly pushing you to, I must always do more. I must run. I must mm. never feel like I'm weak by not doing it. Strength, those kind of values. Mm. If that is violated in any way, you will be really, really triggered. So it is very helpful to know, okay, these are the things that tend to trigger me. Other people will be triggered by other things. And so a value of mine might be something like respect. And I will see that as being violated if someone shows up late. Yeah. Because lateness shows, in my mind, is disrespectful. But somebody else might have a value of creativity or generosity. And so if I'm meeting somebody and they're late, in my mind, they've broken one of my values. I've kicked off. My amygdala's gone. I'm in a foul mood. They might have seen somebody having, I don't know, fainting on the tube. And so they got off the tube to sit down with them, look after them, make sure they were well, get them some water. And that's Mm -hmm. why they're late. They were living their value. I've translated that as violating mine. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was nothing personal. They're not trying to upset me. They're just living their value, being a lovely person. And and values work is really interesting between couples because when you start to see that you have different values, you can start to get far less upset when somebody lives their own, even mm-hmm. if occasionally it violates yours. So I think I work quite well with like for, I think that's that's so so interesting. Where that where that never works for me is driving, right? So I'm constantly using all the bad swear words about the other drivers without thinking to myself, they're in a rush, they're doing this. And what the, on the very small occasions I have done that, it's made me less angry as a driver. Yeah. Mm. I've worked really hard. Dave does not know this. I think I've worked really hard to understand his motivations. Because when you said the late thing, I was like, oh, my God, that's me. That is so me. I hate it when people are late for things. Yeah. And Dave always makes us late for things. Same with Doug. He's always ironing or something. Oh, my God. Yes. Drives me crazy. But I understand his motivations. I did iron the whole wardrobe 20 minutes before we're going on holiday. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But (laughs) his motivations are very, very different from mine and usually driven in kindness. So yes. it's, it's, it's a, it, yeah, it's, with, if you anyway. can notice other people's values and really value them and kind of celebrate their values, then you end up using gratitude yeah, rather than that envy or the annoyance bit. Mm. And the, the final chapter of my book was on gratitude. And it was fascinating the amount of benefits that come when we can see the good. And yeah. we celebrate the good stuff from you have a longer life, you do better in education, you're happier, you recover better from illness or injuries. There's phenomenal benefits come from looking for the good. It sounds so cheesy. No, no it sounds that. great. It sounds yeah. great. But then, but I also did, I wondered, I hoped, I really, really hoped that sometimes when I am in my box of a car and I'm dropping C-bombs about other car drivers, is that a release? Can I can I at least have that as a? It, it's no. not the most helpful coping mechanism because <laughs> I do love it. <laughs> so sometimes, 
those responses can make us feel better. But in that moment, you are seeing all of those other drivers as a threat. And so that is triggering the adrenaline and the cortisol going around your body. Those are helpful chemical releases to have in short doses for acute moments. They are very unhelpful long term. They massively we need to, we need to remember child. this with dog walkers as well, Hall. I know. Um. But they will increase your chance of things like stroke, of heart attacks. Oh, God. Because when you're just constantly flooding your body with those anxiety chemicals, they can be really harmful to you. So okay. if you drive very occasionally and you're dropping those C-bombs, it's not <laughs> the end of the world. If you're driving every day and you're driving angry, and yeah. you're feeling yourself flooding with those. It's not. It's your own health you harm. They don't okay. hear you swearing at them. They're not going to learn from it. Um, no, that's only, true. They're not bastards. <laughs> similarly to you guys, I'm. I am very hot on timeliness, and I married the most laid back Australian you could mm. possibly imagine. Um, and when we were first married. I used to get so angry about him being late. I've told him dinner's ready at 7.30 and he walks in the door at 8. And by that point, I have built myself into such an angry machine. And I shout at him the moment he walks through the door and I've had half an hour of getting more and more wound up. And nobody has a nice night at that point. I've ruined it for both of us. And he's never going to change. And and it got to the point of like, well, we're either not together or I learn how to handle this. And actually, when you start learning this stuff and you figure out, he's just got a different value for me. He's not doing it on purpose. He's not trying to wind me up. He mm. he loses track of time. If I can, sometimes if there's a th- theatre tickets, I will often manipulate the time we have to be at the theatre. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so we, we've got no issues. Um, if we're meeting for dinner, I used to say, let's meet outside. I won't do that. I'll meet inside at the table. I will take a book. I've got my phone and I'll order a glass of wine. So you can learn Mm. how to minimize those issues so that it doesn't trigger your value, but you also maintain a decent relationship. And it's not giving in. I would love him to be on time. But my pragmatic side knows that's not really going to happen. And it's not the biggest deal in the world. And let's figure out what works Mm -hmm. rather than it being a massive clash. If you can do that in your own head, so you're not fighting your own amygdala all the time. Yeah. It just makes life so much more enjoyable and less stressful. I feel like I'm constantly fighting my, this is so, do you feel like this has just been the most rewarding conversation you've ever had in your life, Hol? Because yeah, it feels I honestly like- feel, I just <laughs> finished with my therapist uh, two weeks ago and I was just starting to get a bit like, can I do it on my own? And now I'm like, I'm, I'm refreshed by talking it's- to you, JC. Yeah, this I is do feel like we've both had life affirming things. <laughs> I know. And, and that, that kind of the, the battle between, the kind of um the why and the goals you know that mm. you know what you what you're really striving for against your amygdala like for me that feels like you know um homer simpson and the the pictures of him when he would throttle bart oh that yeah that feels why, like what i'm doing you little <laughs> like that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that that's <laughs> what it feels like is happening all the time <laughs> like in my head <laughs> just like shut up shut up mm-hmm. um so yeah I think there's quite a lot to work on <laughs> and, and, and the approach is releasing Bart 
Someone the other day described it as, so I just need to get my amygdala back in its box. Yeah. It is. Um, Often with mums, we'll talk about the amygdala being a bit like a toddler. You know when a toddler's really hungry and tired and they've asked for a I know, cheese sandwich, and you make them a cheese sandwich, but you've put it on the wrong color plate Mm. and you've cut it as triangles instead of squares, and they're kicking off. And it's so irrational. And they've still got what they asked for in front of them, and you really want to lose it. But actually, you losing it at the toddler is just going to cause two of you to sit there and cry and scream and shout. It's not going to change anything. But if you can slowly soothe and calm, Mm. and remind them that they've still got a brilliant cheese sandwich, and distract them a bit by sticking ben and holly on the tv everything calms down and it's okay yeah and so it's like thinking about you've got this toddler in your head it wants you to stay in your comfort zone at all times because that's where you're safe you if you've got goals and values and a purpose you want to stretch and thrive and do things differently and that's where the struggle comes it wants you to stay in the comfort zone and you want to leave it Mm -hmm. and if you try and leave it it will behave like a toddler it will kick off. It will be emotional. And your job is to slowly soothe and calm it and use that probably patronizing voice that we sometimes have with them of just let's calm things down. Let's not scream and shout and throttle you because that gets us nowhere. But let's see how we can soothe you so you feel better. You can see the bigger picture. Yeah. And I can remind you that you've still got a sandwich and there's some distraction. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's you will end up wrangling. Yeah, and it, and if you think about the example you used, Homer throttles Bart, yeah. and that's funny, and that's part of the thing. And Bart never goes on to be a more well-behaved child because it's, <laughs> the, the joke is that he's naughty, and yes. that's why it, you know you wouldn't have another episode of The Simpsons if he didn't do it. But you're not making a, a new episode of The Simpsons every day. Your life has a story arc. I am not. Does it, Your though? life is canon. It's not a. It's not a a, a recurring episode where you do That's the same true. thing. It's not episodic. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah, episodic. You will never learn to entirely control your amygdala. It's there for a reason. So mm-hmm. we can learn to create an environment where it triggers less, but there will be new, unique, unexpected situations that crop up that we are completely unprepared for. Mm-hmm. But in being able to see that big picture, we have got more coping skills to handle it yeah. and we can see it and things just become less emotional and less stressful. And that that just helps with everything in life. Yeah. Mm, less emotion yeah. and less stress, Hal, huh? what do you reckon? I know, it sounds good to me. <laughs> Jason, do you want to be on beautiful. every episode of the podcast <laughs> oh, from now on? Yes, please. <laughs> Oh my God, I can't, I don't think I could thank you enough. This has been completely amazing, completely amazing, very eye-opening. Yeah, there's there's so much information um, that I think is going to be massively beneficial, selfishly, which is nice, um, but hopefully to everyone else as well. (laughs) Yeah. If anyone wants to get it in book form, um, my book comes out in August um, called The Ten Pillars of Success. And so it literally looks at 10 different characteristics that some of them we've covered today, things like gratitude, belonging, confidence, courage. Um, And it interviews um, just brilliant people. So we've got Dame Kelly Holmes, 
um, he's our belonging chapter. Um, yeah. Lucy Gossage, who's an oncologist and Ironman athlete, was gratitude. Maxine Peak, the actress, is mastery. And they I all kind of Peake. bring these. She's amazing. Um, <laughs> they, they all bring kind of how they've used that pillar to, to be successful. And then we've included worksheets and things at the end of each chapter. So you can do lots of these. And all the oh values are listed in there. Yeah. Um, so you can do that work yourself to kind of what really matters to me and how do I create those metrics that oh, I'm that really matter. Definitely going to do that. I want to do that. that. Yeah. I want to find out my values. That's what I, it's when you were talking about the hundred, th- it's like, right, okay, what three me am too. I? I was immediately gonna help like, me. brain Googling what are my values. <laughs> yeah. um, how can we get it, Josie? Where do, where will it be available? And um, all the so usual... it, it should be anywhere, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're on Audible, it's actually free to listen to at the moment, but without obviously things mm-hmm. like the worksheets. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so it was an Audible exclusive for the first year. And then in August, mm-hmm. it comes out as a physical copy. Um, and you can order that, pre order that on Amazon or any of the bookshops. Amazing. Totally I'm going to pre order it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> thank you so much, Josie. Um, that was absolutely brilliant. So um, oh, thank I, you for having me. Not at oh, all. It's so lovely to meet you. Yeah, lovely to meet you. Thank you for listening. Do please email us at wrpodcast at anthem.co.uk with any questions or stories as we'd love to include them in a future podcast. This podcast was recorded over Zencaster. The editor and composer was David Newman. Please hit like and subscribe. That way you won't miss the next episode. For just £2 a month, you can become one of our supporters on Patreon, and we're working hard to add more rewards for you very soon. For the price of a coffee, you'll join our gang and be the first to know. Go to patreon.com forward slash women's running to find out more. Happy running. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com